Section 1 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland. Translated by Gilbert Canaan. Dawn 1. Part 1. The Dawn. Dianz in el alba che precede al giorno, quando l'anima tua dentro dormia. Purgatorio 9. 1. Come, quando i vapore umidi e spessi, a diradar cominciansi la spera, del sol debilemente entra per essi. Purgatorio 17. From behind the house rises the murmuring of the river. All day long the rain has been beating against the window panes. A stream of water trickles down the window at the corner where it is broken. The yellowish light of the day dies down. The room is dim and dull. The newborn child stirs in his cradle. Although the old man left his sabots at the door when he entered, his footsteps make the floor creak. The child begins to whine. The mother leans out of her bed to comfort it and the grandfather gropes to light the lamp, so that the child shall not be frightened by the night when he awakes. The flame of the lamp lights up old Jean-Michel's red face with its rough white beard and morose expression and quick eyes. He goes near the cradle. His cloak smells wet, and as he walks he drags his large blue list slippers. Louisa signs to him not to go too near. She is fair, almost white, her features are drawn, her gentle, stupid face is marked with red in patches, her lips are pale and swollen, and they are parted in a timid smile. Her eyes devour the child, and her eyes are blue and vague. The pupils are small, but there is an infinite tenderness in them. The child wakes and cries, and his eyes are troubled. Oh, how terrible! The darkness, the sudden flash of the lamp, the hallucinations of a mind as yet hardly detached from chaos, the stifling, roaring night in which it is enveloped, the illimitable gloom from which, like blinding shafts of light, there emerge acute sensations, sorrows, phantoms. Those enormous faces leaning over him, those eyes that pierce through him, penetrating, are beyond his comprehension. He has not the strength to cry out. Terror holds him motionless, with eyes and mouth wide open, and he rattles in his throat. His large head, that seems to have swollen up, is wrinkled with the grotesque and lamentable grimaces that he makes. The skin of his face and hands is brown and purple, and spotted with yellow. "'Dear God!' said the old man with conviction. "'How ugly he is!' He put the lamp down on the table. Louisa pouted like a scolded child. Jean-Michel looked at her out of the corner of his eye and laughed. "'You don't want me to say that he is beautiful? You would not believe it. Come, it is not your fault. They are all like that.' The child came out of the stupor and immobility into which he had been thrown by the light of the lamp and the eyes of the old man. He began to cry. Perhaps he instinctively felt in his mother's eyes a caress which made it possible for him to complain. She held out her arms for him and said, Give him to me. 
the old man began, as usual, to air his theories. You ought not to give way to children when they cry. You must just let them cry. But he came and took the child and grumbled. I never saw one quite so ugly. Louisa took the child feverishly and pressed it to her bosom. She looked at it with a bashful and delighted smile. Oh, my poor child, she said shamefacedly, how ugly you are, how ugly, and how I love you. Jean-Michel went back to the fireside. He began to poke the fire in protest, but a smile gave the lie to the moroseness and solemnity of his expression. Good girl, he said, don't worry about it. He has plenty of time to alter. And even so, what does it matter? Only one thing is asked of him that he should grow into an honest man. The child was comforted by contact with his mother's warm body. He could be heard sucking her milk and gurgling and snorting. Jean-Michel turned in his chair and said once more, with some emphasis, There's nothing finer than an honest man. He was silent for a moment, pondering whether it would not be proper to elaborate this thought, but he found nothing more to say, and after a silence he said irritably, why isn't your husband here? I think he is at the theater, said Louisa timidly. There is a rehearsal. The theater is closed. I passed it just now. One of his lies. No, don't be always blaming him. I must have misunderstood. He must have been kept for one of his lessons. He ought to have come back, said the old man, not satisfied. He stopped for a moment and then asked, in a rather lower voice and with some shame, has he been again? No, father, no, father, said Louisa hurriedly. The old man looked at her. She avoided his eyes. It's not true. You're lying. She wept in silence. Dear God, said the old man, kicking at the fire with his foot. The poker fell with a clatter. The mother and the child trembled. Father, please, please, said Louisa. You will make him cry. The child hesitated for a second or two, whether to cry or to go on with his meal, but not being able to do both at once, he went on with the meal. Jean-Michel continued in a lower tone, though with outbursts of anger. What have I done to the good God to have this drunkard for my son? What is the use of my having lived as I have lived and of having denied myself everything all my life? But you, you, can't you do anything to stop it? Heavens, that's what you ought to do. You should keep him at home. Louisa wept still more. Don't scold me. I am unhappy enough as it is. I have done everything I could. If you knew how terrified I am when I am alone, always I seem to hear his step on the stairs. Then I wait for the door to open, or I ask myself, Oh, God, what will he look like? It makes me ill to think of it. She was shaken by her sobs. The old man grew anxious. He went to her and laid the disheveled bedclothes about her trembling shoulders and caressed her head with his hands. Come, come, don't be afraid. I am here. She calmed herself for the child's sake and tried to smile. I was wrong to tell you that. The old man shook his head as he looked at her. My poor child, it was not much of a present that I gave you. It's my own fault, she said. He ought not to have married me. He is sorry for what he did. What? Do you mean that he regrets? You know, 
You were angry yourself because I became his wife. We won't talk about that. It is true I was vexed, a young man like that. I can say so without hurting you. A young man whom I had carefully brought up, a distinguished musician, a real artist, might have looked higher than you, who had nothing and were of a lower class, and not even of the same trade. For more than a hundred years no craft has ever married a woman who was not a musician. But you know, I bear you no grudge, and am fond of you, and have been ever since I learned to know you. Besides, there's no going back on a choice once it's made. There's nothing left but to do one's duty honestly. He went and sat down again, thought for a little, and then said, with the solemnity in which he invested all his aphorisms, The first thing in life is to do one's duty. He waited for contradiction and spat on the fire. Then, as neither mother nor child raised any objection, he was for going on, but relapsed into silence. They said no more, both Jean-Michel sitting by the fireside and Louisa in her bed dreamed sadly. The old man, in spite of what he had said, had bitter thoughts about his son's marriage, and Louisa was thinking of it also and blaming herself, although she had nothing wherewith to reproach herself. She had been a servant when, to everybody's surprise and her own especially, she married Melchior Kraft, Jean-Michel's son. The Krafts were without fortune, but were considerable people in the little Rhine town in which the old man had settled down more than fifty years before. Both father and son were musicians, and known to all the musicians of the country, from Cologne to Mannheim. Melchior played the violin at the Hof Theatre, and Jean Michel had formerly been director of the Grand Ducal Concerts. The old man had been profoundly humiliated by his son's marriage, for he had built great hopes upon Melchior. He had wished to make him the distinguished man which he had failed to become himself. This mad freak destroyed all his ambitions. He had stormed at first, and showered curses upon Melchior and Louisa, but being a good-hearted creature, he forgave his daughter-in-law when he learned to know her better, and he even came by a paternal affection for her, which showed itself, for the most part, in snubs. No one ever understood what it was that drove Melchior to such a marriage, least of all Melchior. It was certainly not Louisa's beauty. She had no seductive qualities. She was small, rather pale, and delicate, and she was a striking contrast to Melchior and Jean-Michel, who were both big and broad, red-faced giants, heavy-handed, hearty eaters and drinkers, laughter-loving and noisy. She seemed to be crushed by them. No one noticed her, and she seemed to wish to escape even what little notice she attracted. If Melchior had been a kind-hearted man, it would have been credible that he should prefer Louisa's simple goodness to every other advantage, but a vainer man never was. It seemed incredible that a young man of his kidney, fairly good-looking and quite conscious of it, very foolish, but not without talent, and in a position to look for some well-dowered match, and capable even, who knows, of turning the head of one of his pupils among the people of the town, should suddenly have chosen a girl of the people, poor, uneducated, without beauty, a girl who could in no way advance his career. But Melchior was one of those men who always do the opposite of what is expected of them and of what they expect of themselves. It is not that they are not warned. A man who is warned is worth two men, says the proverb. 
they profess never to be the dupe of anything, and that they steer their ship with unerring hand towards a definite point. But they reckon without themselves, for they do not know themselves. In one of those moments of forgetfulness which are habitual with them, they let go the tiller, and as is natural when things are left to themselves, they take a naughty pleasure in rounding on their masters. The ship which is released from its course at once strikes a rock, and Melchior, bent upon intrigue, married a cook. And yet he was neither drunk nor in a stupor on the day when he bound himself to her for life, and he was not under any passionate impulse. Far from it. But perhaps there are in us forces other than mind and heart, other even than the senses, mysterious forces which take hold of us in the moments when the others are asleep, and perhaps it was such forces that Melchior had found in the depths of those pale eyes which had looked at him so timidly one evening when he had accosted the girl on the bank of the river and had sat down beside her in the reeds, without knowing why, and had given her his hand. Hardly was he married than he was appalled by what he had done, and he did not hide what he felt from poor Louisa, who humbly asked his pardon. He was not a bad fellow, and he willingly granted her that, but immediately remorse would seize him again when he was with his friends or in the houses of his rich pupils, who were disdainful in their treatment of him, and no longer trembled at the touch of his hand when he corrected the position of their fingers on the keyboard. Then he would return gloomy of countenance, and Louisa, with a catch at her heart, would read in it with the first glance the customary reproach, or he would stay out late at one inn or another, there to seek self-respect or kindliness from others. On such evenings he would return shouting with laughter, and this was more doleful for Louisa than the hidden reproach and gloomy rancor that prevailed on other days. She felt that she was to a certain extent responsible for the fits of madness in which the small remnant of her husband's sense would disappear, together with the household money. Melchior sank lower and lower, at an age when he should have been engaged in unceasing toil to develop his mediocre talent, he just let things slide, and others took his place. But what did that matter to the unknown force which had thrown him in with the little flaxen-haired servant? He had played his part, and little Jean Christophe had just set foot on this earth, whither his destiny had thrust him. Night was fully come. Louise's voice roused old Jean-Michel from the torpor into which he had sunk by the fireside as he thought of the sorrows of the past and present. "'It must be late, father,' said the young woman affectionately. "'You ought to go home. You have far to go.' "'I am waiting for Melchior,' replied the old man. "'Please, no. I would rather you did not stay.' "'Why?' The old man raised his head and looked fiercely at her. She did not reply. He resumed. "'You are afraid. You do not want me to meet him?' "'Yes, yes. It would only make things worse. You would make each other angry, and I don't want that. Please, please go.' The old man sighed, rose, and said, "'Well, I'll go.' He went to her and brushed her forehead with his stiff beard. He asked if she wanted anything, put out the lamp, and went stumbling against the chairs in the darkness of the room. But he had no sooner reached the staircase than he thought of his son returning drunk. 
and he stopped at each step, imagining a thousand dangers that might arise if Melchior were allowed to return alone. In the bed by his mother's side the child was stirring again. An unknown sorrow had arisen from the depths of his being. He stiffened himself against her. He twisted his body, clenched his fists, and knitted his brows. His suffering increased steadily, quietly, certain of its strength. He knew not what it was, nor whence it came. It appeared immense, infinite, and he began to cry lamentably. His mother caressed him with her gentle hands. Already his suffering was less acute, but he went on weeping, for he felt it still near, still inside himself. A man who suffers can lessen his anguish by knowing whence it comes. By thought, he can locate it in a certain portion of his body which can be cured, or, if necessary, torn away. He fixes the bounds of it, and separates it from himself. A child has no such elusive resource. His first encounter with suffering is more tragic and more true. Like his own being, it seems infinite. He feels that it is seated in his bosom, housed in his heart, and is mistress of his flesh. And it is so. It will not leave his body until it has eaten it away. His mother hugs him to her, murmuring, it is done, it is done. Don't cry, my little Jesus, my little goldfish. But his intermittent outcry continues. It is as though this wretched, unformed, and unconscious mass had a presentiment of a whole life of sorrow awaiting him, and nothing can appease him. The bells of St. Martin rang out in the night. Their voices are solemn and slow. In the damp air they come like footsteps on moss. The child became silent in the middle of a sob. The marvelous music, like a flood of milk, surged sweetly through him. The night was lit up, the air was moist and tender. His sorrow disappeared, his heart began to laugh, and he slid into his dreams with a sigh of abandonment. The three bells went on softly ringing in the morrow's festival. Louisa also dreamed as she listened to them of her own past misery, and of what would become in the future of the dear little child sleeping by her side. She had been for hours lying in her bed, weary and suffering. Her hands and her body were burning. The heavy eiderdown crushed her. She felt crushed and oppressed by the darkness, but she dared not move. She looked at the child, and the night did not prevent her reading his features that looked so old. Sleep overcame her. Fevered images passed through her brain. She thought she heard Melchior open the door, and her heart leaped. Occasionally the murmuring of the stream rose more loudly through the silence, like the roaring of some beast. The window once or twice gave a sound under the beating of the rain. The bells rang out more slowly, and then died down, and Louisa slept by the side of her child. All this time Jean-Michel was waiting outside the house, dripping with rain, his beard wet with the mist. He was waiting for the return of his wretched son, for his mind, never ceasing, had insisted on telling him all sorts of tragedies brought about by drunkenness, and although he did not believe them, he could not have slept a wink if he had gone away without having seen his son return. The sound of the bells made him melancholy for he remembered all his shattered hopes. He thought of what he was doing at such an hour in the street. 
and for very shame he wept. The vast tide of the days moves slowly. Day and night come up and go down with unfailing regularity, like the ebb and flow of an infinite ocean. Weeks and months go by, and then begin again, and the succession of days is like one day. The day is immense, inscrutable, marking the even beat of light and darkness, and the beat of the life of the torpid creature dreaming in the depths of his cradle, his imperious needs, sorrowful or glad, so regular that the night and the day which bring them seem by them to be brought about. The pendulum of life moves heavily, and in its slow beat the whole creature seems to be absorbed. The rest is no more than dreams, snatches of dreams, formless and swarming, and dust of atoms dancing aimlessly, a dizzy whirl passing and bringing laughter or horror. Outcry, moving shadows, grinning shapes, sorrows, terrors, laughter, dreams, dreams. All is a dream, both day and night. And in such chaos the light of friendly eyes that smile upon him, the flood of joy that surges through his body from his mother's body, from her breasts filled with milk, the force that is in him, the immense unconscious force gathering in him, the turbulent ocean roaring in the narrow prison of the child's body, for eyes that could see into it there would be revealed whole worlds half buried in the darkness, nebulae taking shape, a universe in the making. His being is limitless, he is all that there is. Months pass, islands of memory begin to rise above the river of his life. At first they are little uncharted islands, rocks just peeping above the surface of the waters. Round about them and behind in the twilight of the dawn stretches the great untroubled sheet of water, then new islands touched to gold by the sun. So from the abyss of the soul there emerge shapes definite and scenes of a strange clarity in the boundless day which dawns once more ever the same with its great monotonous beat there begins to show forth the round of days hand in hand and some of their forms are smiling others sad but ever the links of the chain are broken and memories are linked together above weeks and months the river the bells as long as he can remember, far back in the abysses of time, at every hour of his life, always their voices, familiar and resonant, have rung out. Night, half asleep, a pale light made white the window. The river murmurs. Through the silence its voice rises omnipotent. It reigns over all creatures. Sometimes it caresses their sleep and seems almost itself to die away in the roaring of its torrent. Sometimes it grows angry and howls like a furious beast about to bite. The clamor ceases. Now there is a murmuring of infinite tenderness, silvery sounds like clear little bells, like the laughter of children, or soft singing voices, or dancing music. A great mother voice that never, never goes to sleep, it rocks the child as it has rocked through the ages, from birth to death, the generations that were before him. It fills all his thoughts, 
and lives in all his dreams, wraps him round with the cloak of its fluid harmonies, which still will be about him when he lies in the little cemetery that sleeps by the water's edge, washed by the Rhine. The bells, it is dawn. They answer each other's call, sad, melancholy, friendly, gentle. At the sound of their slow voices there rise in him hosts of dreams, dreams of the past, desires, hopes, regrets for creatures who are gone, unknown to the child, although he had his being in them, and they live again in him. Ages of memory ring out in that music, so much mourning, so many festivals, and from the depths of the room it is as though, when they are heard, there passed lovely waves of sound through the soft air, free-winging birds, and the moist soughing of the wind. Through the window smiles a patch of blue sky, a sunbeam slips through the curtains to the bed. The little world, known to the eyes of the child, all that he can see from his bed every morning as he awakes, all that with so much effort he is beginning to recognize and classify so that he may be master of it, his kingdom is lit up. There is the table where people eat, the cupboard where he hides to play, the tiled floor along which he crawls, and the wallpaper which in its antic shapes holds for him so many humorous or terrifying stories, and the clock which chatters and stammers so many words which he alone can understand. How many things there are in this room! He does not know them all. Every day he sets out on a voyage of exploration in this universe which is his. Everything is his. Nothing is immaterial. Everything has its worth, man or fly. Everything lives, the cat, the fire, the table, the grains of dust which dance in a sunbeam. The room is a country, a day is a lifetime. How is a creature to know himself in the midst of these vast spaces? The world is so large, a creature is lost in it, and the faces, the actions, the movement, the noise which make round about him an unending turmoil. He is weary, his eyes close, he goes to sleep that sweet deep sleep that overcomes him suddenly at any time and wherever he may be, on his mother's lap or under the table where he loves to hide. It is good. All is good. These first days come buzzing up in his mind like a field of corn or a wood stirred by the wind and cast in shadow by the great fleeting clouds. End of section 1 Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago.